On Thursday, March 3rd, 1949, London's Daily Mirror began a series of macabre stories about murder that began with the headline, quote, Hunt for the Vampire. They did not name names, but it became common knowledge very soon after that a certain prisoner was the man to whom they referred one John George Haig. What precipitated these stories was a missing persons report two weeks earlier. On February 20th, a man and woman came to the police station in Chelsea to report that Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon, age 69, seemed to have disappeared into thin air. This woman was a resident of Onslow Court Hotel in South Kensington, where she had lived for the past two years. She had made an appointment with a man, and the man who was is now who was reporting her missing, Mr. John Haig, to visit his place of business in Sussex. According to him, she had failed to show up. He had gone to her friend Constance Lane to ask what had become of her. He claimed that Mrs. Duran Deacon had asked him to pick her up from the Army and Navy surplus store, which he had gone to do, and after an hour, she had not come. Mrs. Lane had noticed that Mrs. Duran Deacon had not been at her usual seat at dinner or breakfast the following morning, and this had worried her. So she approached the chambermaid who told her that the missing woman had been out all night and hadn't returned. After Haig's account, Lane decided that she must report this incident to the police. It was not like her friend to just be out without telling someone. Olive was a woman of a strict routine, so something was amiss and Constance felt the need to report it. Haig said that he himself would drive her over to the police station. So, a photo and description of the missing woman was issued to all police departments, the press, and to the hotel personnel. Sergeant Lamborn, the policewoman assigned to take interviews at the hotel, queried the manager who offered an uncomplimentary description of Haig and a record of his debts to the hotel. Lamborn thought Haig had been rather slick in his responses and looked suspicious there as a middle-aged man among all these wealthy older women, and so she decided to do a background check. Smart on her. Within an hour, Scotland Yard reported that according to the criminal records office, Haig had been arrested several times for swindling and had spent three separate terms in prison for conspiracy to defraud, forgery, obtaining money by false pretenses, and theft. He immediately was placed under suspicion. Haig tried to be helpful. Blue-eyed and handsome, with his polished manner, obvious cleanliness, and stylish dress, made a good impression on reporters. He answered all questions with apparent concern over the missing woman, and some people noticed that he wore gloves, and it was not long before it became known that Haig was a compulsive hand washer who always wore gloves summer or winter. He detested dirt. Even as Haig gave these interviews to reporters at the hotel, stressing his hope that Mrs. Duran Deacon would be, you know, found safe and sound, the West Sussex constables were checking out his place of business, Hursley Products in Crawley. John Haig had claimed to be the director, which was soon proven to be a fabrication. In fact, from this company, he rented a two-story brick storefront surrounded by a six-foot fence for what he called, quote-unquote, experimental work. He had told the managing director of Hursley Products, from whom he had recently borrowed money, that he was doing a conversion job. Conversion work was a normal industrial practice, primarily used to break down materials in strong acid. People willing to do it could make good money. The police, led by Horsham detective Pat Heslin, forced their way into the building to examine the contents of the room. 
they found tools, trays, wires, a sheet of red cellophane paper, and a wad of cotton near a bench. Three carboys, narrow-necked, 10-gallon glass bottles used for acid, stood in a row packed in straw. One was empty, another half empty. Nearby lay a new stirrup pump with a part removed, and from a hook on the door hung a rubber apron stained by chemicals. There was also a pair of rubber boots and rubber gloves, and inside an army bag was a gas mask. The police team also found a man's hat box in an attache case that bore the initials J.G.H. Leaving a guard at the storehouse, Heslin reported these items to Inspector Shelley Symes, who authorized their seizure for a search. They found papers relating to someone named Archibald Henderson, Rose Henderson, and three people with the last name McSwan. There was a marriage certificate, several passports, identity cards, and driver's licenses. Deep inside the hat box lay a 38 infilled revolver and eight rounds of ammunition. The revolver had been fired recently. It was not long before they discovered a cleaner's receipt for a Persian lamb coat. They traced the coat back to the one that belonged to Mrs. Duran Deacon, our missing elderly lady from earlier. Back at the hotel, they found a work basket in her room with scraps of material that matched patches on the Persian lamb coat. These were sent to the police laboratory. Then a press report brought Mr. Bull of Horsham Ford to report that jewelry had been bought into his jewelry shop to be pawned the day after Mrs. Duran Deacon had been reported missing. Signs collected the jewelry and had it identified by a relative that said it did in fact belong to Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon. The person who had sold it signed his name J. McLean at 32 St. George's Drove, S.W., the jeweler's assistant recognized that John Haig and this Jay McLean were in fact the same person. In previous visits, when he had also pawned jewelry, he had used his name, John George Haig. Not surprisingly, he was arrested. When Detective Inspector Webb approached Haig and asked him to come along to the police station, he reportedly said, quote, certainly, I will do anything to help you, as you know, end quote. And it was not long before they had not only found out where Mrs. Duran Deacon had gone, but other missing persons as well. And when it was all said and done, John George Haig was responsible for the deaths of at least five people that the police could corroborate and somehow convinced the press in all of England that he was drinking the blood of these people as well. You are now listening to Murder V. Wrote. I'm your host, V. got John Haig down to the police station in Chelsea, he had a very detached air about him. He smoked, he read a newspaper. At some point, he fell asleep. For some time, the police revealed nothing about what it was that they wanted for him, and it took almost three hours for them to prepare to question him, and that was sufficient time for John Haig to prepare a strategy as well. 
In the meantime, they received a report from the brother of Rose Henderson that Haig had been the last person to see her alive as well before she had vanished without letting anyone know that she was leaving. And this confirmed the suspicions of the detectives on the case. So Haig immediately began to lie about his visits to Worsham. He arrogantly assumed that the police couldn't touch him, so he talked very freely about what happened. Um, from the nature of the questions, Haig realized that the police did have some evidence on him, um, and after first pretending that the coat that belonged to Mrs. Henderson was something that he had never seen before, he admitted that he had indeed sold Mrs. Duran Deacon's jewelry and that he knew that the coat was hers. The detectives asked him how he'd acquired Mrs. Duran Deacon's property and what he knew about her whereabouts. And he began to invent a story about blackmail, which quickly fell through. However, when left alone with one detective, Inspector Webb, he asked what the chances were of anyone being released from an institution for the criminally insane at Broadmoor. It betrayed his involvement as well as his strategy to pass him off as insane. And well, Inspector Webb declined to answer the question. At that point, Haig laid his cards on the table, still believing himself to be immune to prosecution. If I told you the truth, he said, you would not believe me. It sounds too fantastic for belief. Apparently thinking that he would be shipped right off to Broadmoor, he waved away Inspector Webb's cautionary words and said, quote, I will tell you about it. Mrs. Duran Deacon no longer exists. She had disappeared completely and no trace of her can ever be found. I have destroyed her with acid. You will find the sludge which remains at Leopold Road. Every trace is gone. He then showed his naive arrogance with, quote, how can you prove murder without a body? This admission seemed rather inexplicable at first, but as Haig's history was uncovered, it became clear what his intentions had been. While in prison years before, Haig had discussed this point of law with fellow prisoners. He had convinced himself that if there is no corpse, which is what he understood the term corpus selecti to mean, that there can be no conviction. In fact, he had talked about the legal issue so often he'd acquired the name Old Corpus Delecti. He was convinced that the police had to have a physical body to actually prosecute someone for murder and that there were ways to make sure that did not happen. It was in prison where he experimented with acid on mice to see how well their corpses dissolved. He also mentioned that to get real money, one had to prey on older wealthy women. However, Haig had not taken into account the weight of the circumstantial evidence, even without a body, that can be used to prove the overwhelming probability of guilt. He had already offered a confession, which in itself went a long way towards helping the police prove their case. They only needed some corroborating evidence. They had Mrs. Duran Deacon's coat and jewelry, and it was time to find out if they could recover any evidence from the sludge, as he put it. So because this case has a lot of moving parts, I don't want to delve too far into a discussion about law because that is not something that I have a great area of expertise on. But I do want to talk a bit about corpus delecti in this particular situation and case. Um, so what it generally means, and well, not generally, I will give you the actual translation. So what it means in Latin literally is body of the crime. 
So in its original sense, the body in question refers not to a corpse as John Haig interpreted it to be, but to the body of essential facts that taken together prove that a crime was committed. So in popular usage, corpus delicti also refers to an actual physical object upon which a crime has been committed. So in the U.S., when we're talking about Western law, um, this phrase kind of commonly transfers to the idea that basically the principle is that no one should be convicted of a crime without sufficient evidence that a crime actually occurred. So the way John Haig also interpreted this is that essentially if you're saying that I murdered someone and you don't have a body, then how, what's to say that this person is actually dead and that you are not going to prosecute me. And then as I sit there, they walk through the door or are somewhere on vacation in Aruba or whatever it is, and they are actually not dead. So interestingly enough, um, and again, I would, don't want to dive into the, the history of this a lot. There was a time, especially when it comes to law, and if you are a forensic files um, junkie like I am, you'll see that they have several cases that they discuss over the seasons where there's no body that is found and they're still able to prosecute their crimes. But for a while, um, as it pertains to U.S. law, prosecuting crimes for murder with no body were a bit more difficult and people generally did not do that. So unless you had a lot of that corroborating circumstantial evidence to prove basically without a doubt that I don't have a body, but everything points to the fact that this person has to be deceased or has had to have been murdered and is not going to walk through that door is how these crimes get prosecuted. So John Hay took a very literal aspect of what corpus delicti means and then applied that in this situation the only issue with that is is that he left behind quite a bit of evidence so it made it very easy for prosecutors to still take him to task because one he had confessed and two they were able to find evidence to corroborate the story that he told them um and we'll get into that particular evidence and how it paints a very vivid picture of what happened a little later in the show So Haig was once again cautioned not to really speak, but he went on to offer a full description of what he had done to Mrs. Duran Deacon. He dictated a statement that took two and a half hours to write down. He claimed that as she was examining some paper to use for artificial fingernails, he had shot her in the back of the head. He then went to his car, fetched a penknife and a glass and then used these items to drain the blood from Mrs. Durand Deacon so that he could drink it. He then put the body in a 45-gallon oil drum with some acid and left it to go into effect. The murder of Mrs. Olive Durand Deacon had netted him around 111 pounds and 10 shillings. He went further to state that he had killed five more people and dissolved them in acid to dispose of them and actually drank their blood. He had filled a glass full of blood after each one of them, and he says that he consumed it. He had an overwhelming need for it, he claimed, and then that is why he had killed them. He described a dream cycle that always preceded his compulsion that involved images of blood. Since childhood, he had been fascinated by the substance, and in 1944, his car overturned in an accident with the lorry. After that, he had recurring dreams of crucifixes that dripped blood. 
what he did, he implied, he had no control over. Haig was kept in custody and charged with the murder of Mrs. Duran Deacon and remanded to lose prison. From there, he admitted to killing three more people, a woman from Hammersmith, a youth from Kensington, and a girl from Eastbourne. And again, he said it was all to have their blood. This made nine victims in all, according to his count. He showed no hint of remorse or of fear about what was to happen to him. This new statement was also written down and signed. However, there were no other charges leveled against him. Because of his strange announcements, his mental state became a significant issue to the courts and to the press. That he claimed to murder in order to drink the blood of his victims unassociated with any sexual perversion became a point of great debate. There were no other cases quite like it, and most of the examining physicians didn't really believe him. In addition, Haig had heard his own case. Before launching into his bizarre account, he had asked what the chances were of someone getting out of Broadmoor, indicating that this is what he had in mind all along. After his initial confection, the West Sussex chief constable, why couldn't I say Sussex? <laughs> Um, the West Sussex Chief Constable requested help from Scotland Yard in the form of a chief inspector and a pathologist. Chief Inspector Mahone assist, assumed charge of the case, and he went with Dr. Keith Simpson and Inspector Symes to the storehouse in Crawley where Haig had done his experiments. It was their job to see if anything could be salvaged as evidence. It would be an arduous task, but hopefully they had arrived before the acid had fully done its work. And Haig's hasty confection confession proved to ultimately be his undoing. Let's talk a bit about George Haig before the murders. John George Haig came from Yorkshire, England. There is no suggestion in his family that there's any type of mental disorder, although his mother Emily claimed that she had experienced acute anxiety during the last three months before he was born. She was 40 and he was her first and only child. She'd been married 11 years to his father, John Robert Haig, and suddenly he had been fired from his job as a foreman at an electricity department. So this put the family in dire straits and they were forced to borrow money, which they considered very shameful. Haig was born July 24th, 1909. Several months later, his father found work again and they moved to Outwood, where Haig spent mostly the next 24 years of his life. He claimed that his life had been quiet and monostatic, um, not monostatic, um, monastic without the typical joys of childhood. I apparently can't read my own notes. His parents belonged to a religious sect known as the Peculiar People or the Plymouth Brethren, who were purist and anti-clerical. He was told Bible stories and, and forbidden from participating in sports or any kind of entertainment. That was all right with him because he developed an abhorrence to dirt. Hated it. In all of his actions, his father warned him he should take care not to, quote, grieve the Lord. The word, the world was evil and the family needed to keep themselves separately. So Haig's father even built a tall fence around their house and garden to, dis to distance them from the other neighbors. John Haig Sr. had a bluish mark on his forehead, which he said was the devil's brand. He had been marked because he had sinned and he warned his son to never do the same. His mother was not marked because she was an angel and Haig thereafter regarded mother figures in that light. He found it remarkable that he was the child of a sinner and an angel. He built up a state of anxiety over doing anything that might leave the mark on him and thereby show him to be a sinner. 
He vigilantly examined others for this indicator and often stayed awake at night wondering if the mark had arisen on his face. It was not long, however, before he discovered that he would not necessarily be punished for going astray. So he started doing small pranks and lies and produced no mark on his skin. And that is when he realized that he had been conned by his father. As a boy, he showed a strong sensitivity to others, especially animals. He kept a dog and several pet rabbits as substitutes for the friends that he was not allowed to have. He sometimes gave his own food to the neighbor's dogs. He made many statements to the effect that he could not bear the sufferings of others. Even those he killed, he claimed had not suffered. Nevertheless, it was clear that he valued animals over human life. He rarely misbehaved as a child, but when he did, his mother would strike the back of his hands with the bristles of a hairbrush. And he later said that this treatment drew blood, which he would lick, and that's how he developed his blood craving. Many people, he said this to, to build the image of insanity, but those people who later do become vampiric often report such incidents from their childhood. So... It's hard to say. There's no evidence that he ever drank any of these victims' blood, but that is also difficult because, well, there were no bodies, for one. And for two, again, like I said, from an empirical standpoint, sometimes when people have that particular bloodlust or have that craving for blood um, as adults or have that kind of vampiric vampiric tendency um what has happened is some type of incident in their childhood with blood that they have licked or tasted or whatever and had some type of affinity to that taste although he attended school Haig generally went right home afterwards rather than mingling with the other children he's a very solitary individual and he also became a liar to avoid distressing his parents, he developed a habit of inventing what he knew they wanted to hear. So he became quick with his tongue and very clever in his remarks. And I think that that is very true about most children, um, especially if they are concerned about the way their parents are going to react. And typically evidence in psych psychologists, um, especially as far as early childhood development are concerned, will often tell people that if your children feel like they cannot come to you um, without judgment and without punishment, or they talk to you with a fear of punishment, then children who fear punishment or shunning or shame from their parents become very good liars. They become very, very good at hiding things and telling their parents what they want to hear versus the truth so that they don't have to deal with the fallout of the punishment. Haig's greatest joy was music, and he learned to play the piano and the organ. He also sang in the choir. Um, so he grew up in a very religious, strict household um, that relied on designated authoritarian um, upbringings. And so from ages 10 to 16, he basically participated in the things that he had been raised to believe were sinful and his parents allowed it. He felt like he was getting away with something and a psychiatrist would later determine that this had been kind of the sociopathic turning point for him. Hagen also described how he would meditate on the image of the bleeding Christ from the portraits in the cathedral, claiming that it had adversely affected him and partially inspired his bloodlust. Haig also really loved cars and after finishing school, he took a job as an apprentice um, in a firm of motor engineers. And since the work was dirty, he really only spent a year doing it and left because he did not like dirt. 
He then became a clerk for a while. Um, he became an underwriter. Um, and then he kind of learned about the world of high finance and managed to buy um, a pretty expensive car, a bright red Alfa Romeo. However, at the age of 21, he had a brush with the law for fraudulent practices because it seems that the petty cash box was stolen um, from his job and he was suspected, but he was let go without let go without a punishment. Um, but he lost that job and he seemed to have a lot of promise at it. So David Briffitt, who wrote the book, The Acid Bath Murders, which a lot of this information came from, um, and I will put a link to that in the show notes, um, he makes the case that Haig must have been aware at this time of, of a notorious trial that was going on in France. Um, it was all over the English papers, and it um, involved Maitre Sarrette, who was a French lawyer who had devised a get-rich quick, get quick scheme that involved insurance, murder, and the disposal of bodies in what else? Sulfuric acid. Sarette insured a man who was dying and persuaded a female friend to marry him. She then used the decoy husband to assure insurance companies that he was no health risk. Then when the first man died, they all collected. However, the first fake, the fake husband blackmailed the lawyer who then murdered him and his mistress. He then placed the bodies in a metal tub and dissolved them with acid. He might have gotten away with it, but he went on to repeat the insurance fraud for an even larger amount of money and then got caught. He was sentenced to death. And if Haig did indeed read the story, it would seem that he no doubt believed that he was cleverer than Surrett and could get away with it. So in 1934, John Haig stopped attending his parents' church and got married to a young woman named Beatrice Hammer. She was 21, independent, and a very high-spirited woman. Haig impressed her with his manners and charm, and when he asked for her hand in marriage, she immediately said yes. Um, they kept their approaching nuptials a secret, um, and then Beatrice started to have second thoughts. And to a guest at the hotel where she was staying, she said, oh God, I wish it could be anyone else. She was not sure about his character or the source of his money. However, on July 6th of that year, she went through with it. Both sets of parents disapproved, and although Haig's parents allowed the couple to live with them. The marriage lasted about four months, ended when Haig was arrested in October and sent to prison. While he was there, his wife gave birth to a baby daughter, which she gave up for adoption. Haig saw her only once more briefly to tell her that they were never officially wed because he already had a wife at the time. It was a lie, and it's not really clear why he told Beatrice that he was already married. So John Haig viewed prison as a temporary setback, right? He's like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to bounce back. It seems that he had read the newspaper an account that someone who sold cars that had been leased and it struck him as easy money, which greatly appealed to him, as we know. Although he did seem to overlook the fact that the person who had done it was also now in jail. So Haig felt like he was smarter than this person. He could pull this off. So he became the higher purchase inspector of one of the companies and finding the system to be very lax took advantage when he dis and so he writes this in his journal quote when I discovered that there were easier ways of making a living than to work long hours in an office I did not ask myself whether what I was doing was right or wrong that seemed to me to be irrelevant I merely said this is what I wish to do. And as that means lay within my power, that was what I decided. 
Haig's approach to this crime was to advertise for a garage, stating that the necessary capital was available. He would then select a garage whose owner was having financial trouble, and he would take an option to purchase. During the option, the commission on any cars that Haig sold would be divided. He would then use the name of the garage to obtain a blank hire porch purchase forms for a car. He would then forge someone's handwriting who lived in the vicinity of the garage and use that to create a fictitious purchase of a non-existent car. The company advanced the money, which Haig would endorse in cash. He only got away with this for a few months before he was arrested and imprisoned for 15 months. This was his first real penalty, and yet it had no effect on redirecting him to getting an honest occupation. It was not long before his belief in his own superiority got him into more serious trouble. While in prison, Haig was ostracized from the brethren for his sin. He was shocked. His mother afterwards said to anyone who would listen that this expulsion had affected his future outlook. And after prison, he returned to his parents' home and went into the dry cleaning business. He succeeded well until his partner was killed in a motorcycle accident. And the subsequent liquidation of their business kind of soured him. So he took what money he got from that and he left his hometown and went to London. So... At this point, Haig sees a job listing about a chauffeur slash secretary at amusement park, and he applies. And this kind of begins a whole new chapter in his life. And it was only by chance that the person that had hired him would actually become one of his first victims. So the amusement park owner's name was Doctor was Mr. William Donald McSwan, who was affectionately nicknamed Mac. As a young man with good prospects, he liked Haig and thought that he was an excellent employee. He never mentioned anything about his past, and so Mac introduced John Haig to his parents, who approved of him and his manners and his, you know, very particular way of dressing immediately. The two young men became fast friends, and they enjoyed cars and clothes and, and, and going drinking like most young men. As Haig learned the business, he was promoted to manager. However, after a year, he left to go into business on his own. The McSwans were sorry to see him go, but he did not like to work for other people, and they understood that. Um, he set up a fake solicitor's office by using the name of a reputable firm. He then pretended to have an estate to liquidate and some public company shares to dispose of. Checks came in and, ca and Haig cashed them without providing the goods. He would then move on to duplicate the scheme in another area. However, the law caught up with him again, and once again, he was sent to prison, and this time for four years. Within a year of getting out, he was back again in 21 months for theft of goods. He claimed the owner asked him to sell those things that he had taken, but these lies failed to save him. While in prison this time, Haig vowed he would not be back, and he formed a plan to go after rich older women. To his mind, that is where the big money was to be found, so he learned to work with sulfuric acid in the prison's tin shop. He ran experiments on mice supplied to him by other prisoners who had outside work privileges, and he made an extended study of the effects of sulfuric acid on animal tissue. It is through this he discovered how easy it was to dispose of a body if one had a sufficient amount of acid and a private place to do it, with a mouse that only required half an hour. He used these repeated experiments with the mice and used that to calculate how much time and how much sulfuric acid he would need to dissolve a human body. Smart man, wish he would have applied all of this learning somewhere else, but I digress. So when he got out of prison four years later, he found work as an accountant at Mr. Steven, 
with Mr. Mr. Stevens in an engineering firm. He lived for a short time with the Stevens family. They had two daughters, and the older one, Barbara, shared Haig's passion for music, and they developed a close friendship. And eventually they talked about marriage, although Haig was not divorced from his first wife, Beatrice, and was not in any position to make any such arrangements. He was also nearly 20 years Barbara's senior. Nevertheless, she proved to be his closest friend and genuinely believed that she would become his wife. Gross. So in 1944, Haig was involved in a car accident. He suffered a wound to the head, which bled into his mouth, and he claims that it revived in him his dreams of blood from his childhood. Um, this is the same year that he started to kill. So he rented a basement space at 79 Gloucester Street, which apparently proved too convenient to resist. He kept the carboys of acid there, and it was not long before he transferred what he had learned in prison to the world at large. A public house in Kensington, he chanced in a public house in Kensington, he chanced upon Mac McSwan again, and he had worked for him before his second prison term, as we had discussed. Mac was happy to see him and took Haig to see his parents too. Having no idea what lay in their future, the McSwans were super pleased to see him. Because remember, they didn't know that he had been to prison or any of these things. They just, you know, remembered him as a, a very nice, upstanding young man that it worked for them and that they thought the world of and that was friends with their son. So, um, Haig told them that he had had some recent investments in property and that was a tidy income, um... And so he listened intently. I'm sorry, the McSwans told Haig that they had property and they were getting incomes from rent. And Haig listened intently and formed a plan, right? So Mac and Haig began to spend more time together again. And one day, um, Mac McSwan wrote a postcard for Haig to Miss um, Barbara Stevens and Crawley. And it was on the 6th of September in 1944 that Mac McSwan was never seen again. In Haig's diary, found later by the police, there is a cross etched in red crayon under the entry for September 9th. This may have been the day that he either killed or disposed of Mac McSwan. Haig claimed that he had sudden need for blood, and so he hit McSwan over the head with a blunt instrument, possibly a table leg or a pipe, and that he then slit his throat. McSwan... <clears throat> Haig writes that he then, quote, got a mug and took some blood from his neck and drank it. He left the corpse there overnight to die and had to decide what he was now to do with it. So in his workroom, Haig had um, acid, much more than he needed for the things he claimed to be doing. So he went searching old bomb sites from the war and he found a 40-gallon drum and he then put Mac McSwan into it. Um... Getting the body stuffed into this barrel was a bit of an ordeal because McSwan was quite a bit larger than Haig. Haig was only five foot eight. Um, McSwan was closer to six feet. So John Haig removed Mac McSwan's valuables and clothing. He then laid the drum on its side and dragged the body into it. And then it took him about a half an hour to do this, but he folded the body up into the drum and then stood it up once he was able to shove it all down, Mr. McSwan down into the, the I'm sorry, down into the barrel. So he then packed um, Mac McSwan's overcoat around him. And then he donned an apron and gloves and began to fill a bucket with acid and then carefully pour the bucketfuls of acid into the drum with McSwan. 
as he worked, the fumes that accumulated from the acid began to overwhelm him. Um, so he hadn't expected this um, because his office was poorly ventilated and it just kind of became a thing where he had to kind of go outside and catch his breath. So what he did is once he got the acid in there, he put the lid tightly on the drum, locked his office and went home. Um, so he returned to the basement two days later to check on the progress and he saw that it was just like a blackish sludge and he said that it smelled awful. He said that using a wooden rod, he stirred it around to make sure that Macba Swan was fully dissolved. Um, he also states at this time that it was more congealed than he had expected, but sufficiently liquid enough to pour down a large manhole drain, which is exactly what he did, using a bucket to scoop the sludge from inside the drum until it was nearly empty. To Haig's chagrin, there were still lumps of something in the bottom of the drum, so he had to dig them out with the stick and force them down the drain, and then he cleaned the drum. And once that was done, Haig experienced a sense of euphoria. He had murdered someone and no one would ever be able to pin it on him. In fact, no one would ever find the body. Corpus Delecti. And now it was time to collect Mac's possessions. So first, Haig went to McSwan's parents and told them that their son had gone away to avoid the draft. Since McSwan had already voiced plans to go underground rather than serve in the military, it seemed credible to his parents at first that he had, in fact, gone into hiding. Haig even began sending fake postcards to the McSwans from Scotland. He then made plans to acquire the rest of the McSwan holdings. Haig had learned how acid had made it difficult to breathe, so he fashioned a tin mask for himself. He also bought a stirrup pump to get the acid out of the containers into the tub, since that had also proved to be a rather arduous task. He had an acid bathtub specially made of steel, and he painted it with several more layers to make it resistant to corrosion. Um, in this book, Breffert says that he had two oil drums for this purpose rather than a tub. So it depends on what source you are getting the information from. So some sources say two oil drums, other sources say he had a tub. Two months later, according to the statement he made from the police, he murdered a middle-aged woman from Hammersmith who was never identified. Um, and then he went on to murder both of the elder McSwans, the people who had welcomed him back without any reservation into their company. He hit them over the head with the same pipe that he had done their son, and he claims to have drunk their blood and dissolved them in acid baths as well. In July, After July 2nd, 1945, the McSwans simply disappeared. Haig told their landlady that they had gone away to America. He also rifled through the family file so that he was prepared to answer any questions, and he had all of their mail forwarded to him, including the McSwans' pensions. He then disposed of their properties. Later, he claimed that he had killed them both because the father's corpse did not produce enough blood to satisfy him. However, the fact that he took over their property and investments indicates a different motive. Pretending to be William Donald McSwan, he forged the young man's signature on a power of attorney. He then forged a deed on a property owned by McSwan's mother and proceeded to appropriate it into his own name, his false one. He sold the properties and netted approximately 1,720 pounds. He also obtained securities from the sale of the possessions and owned and gained another 6,000 pounds. Their disappearance was never reported to the police, and it was not even discovered until Haig made this confession five years later in 1949. 
by this time, Hagen moved into a room um, 404 at the Onslaught Court Hotel in Kensington, a resident hotel that housed mostly well-heeled older widows. He posed as a liaison officer between people with patents, investors, and engineering firms. His firm, he told people, was the Union Engineering Group with branches in four towns. That autumn, Haig later claimed in his tacked-on confession that he killed a young man named Max from Kensington, but there was no way to test the truth of this statement. However, he was certainly ready to kill again. Within two years of the McSwan family deaths, Haig had spent all the money that he had gotten from their estates, so he began looking around for another way to enrich himself quickly. An ad for selling a house bought him in contact with Dr. Archibald Henderson, 42, and his wife, Rose Henderson, 41. Haig offered more for the house than they were asking, but could not come up with the money, so the deal fell through. However, he had never intended to buy the house at all. What he wanted was a way into their lives. So he continued to see the Hendersons and develop a friendship with them based on common interests in music, although they were not the type of people which he would normally approve. They lived expensively, drank, and were fairly worldly. Rose had been married before and was divorced. Yet the fact that they obviously had money appealed to Haig, so he cultivated an association and, of course, formed a plan. He encouraged them to talk about themselves, and through those conversations, he learned all that he could about their properties, holdings, and their habits. He claims that he often played the piano for them and performed many acts of kindness. The association lasted about five months, um, showing just really how patient Haig could be once he had um, his sights set on a particular prey. So he was able to basically keep a friendship with these people for five months until he could do his plan to... Guys, my dog is on the bed and she fell asleep and she is snoring and shaking and having a dog dream. And I wish I was recording so you could see this because it's hilarious. So if you hear snoring, that is her. And I have the window open for a bit of a draft. So forgive me because I believe you also heard laughing and talking. And it's because my neighbors sit on the stoop that is directly by my bedroom window to smoke and enjoy each other. So sorry for that. <laughs> um... So during this time, Haig rented a store. This is when he rented the storehouse on Leopold Road in Crawley from uh, Hustley Products for his experimental work. And he moved his possessions there from the Gloucester Street um, location. So then on December 22nd, 1947, he ordered three carboys of sulfuric acid and two 40-gallon drums without tops. So in February of 1948, the next year, Haig visited the Hendersons and spent several days with them. He claims that that dream cycle began for him again and indicating that the blood dreams drove him to murder. And at the same time, his debts were mounting. So believe what reason you want. On February 12th, he drove Dr. Henderson to Crawley and shot him in the head with his own revolver, which Haig had stolen from their home. He left Henderson in the storeroom while he went to get a gas mask, which he had also taken from the Henderson's place. He then returned to Mrs. Henderson and told her that her husband was ill and drove her to her own demise. She was irritated with this interruption in her life and did not want to go to the storehouse, but Haig asked her to carry some of her husband's things on their way, seeing him at the home of a friend. So she begrudgingly went into the building. Haig shot her as well. He trussed up both bodies into their acid baths, and then he left them there overnight. Isn't it he says that he took a drought of blood from each of them? His diary from February 12th 
indicates that the Henderson's initials with next next to them with two red crosses. He dissolved them in acid baths as he had done with the McSwans. Henderson's foot was still intact, but Haig dumped the sludge along with the foot in one corner of a trashy yard without bothering to take care of such obvious evidence. Apparently, he felt immune to capture. The following morning, the night porter at the hotel where the Hendersons were staying was asked to take their dog and Irish setter out for a walk. Haig then went to the hotel, paid the bill, showed a letter of authority from Dr. Henderson, and then took the Hendersons' possessions and dog away with them. The items he sold, along with their car, but he kept the dog with him in his hotel. He also acquired and sold the Hendersons' house, and rather shockingly, he told Barbara Stevens... He sold Barbara Stevens some of Mrs. Henderson's clothing, and to Mrs. Duran Deacon, whom Haig had met at the hotel, he sold a handbag. From these transactions, he gained almost 8,000 pounds. He wrote to people the Hendersons knew. He copied Rose's handwriting and even forged her signature after writing out a full 15 pages to satisfy her brother, Arnold Berlin, who wanted to go to the police. Haig explained to her brother that the Hendersons had decided to immigrate to South Africa. Berlin was worried but did not know where to find them. And when he was pressed again about the police, Haig told him that Archie would get into trouble because he had performed an illegal abortion. Berlin didn't quite believe this, but he didn't have any proof otherwise. And although Berlin was a shrewd businessman, Haig managed to finally convince him. So he accepted Rose's letter, mailed from Glasgow, as authentic. Haig later claimed that he killed the Hendersons to get their blood, but his actions and subsequent to their dirtal sorry, he's claiming that he killed the Hendersons only for their blood, but his subsequent actions after killing them, the dissolving them in acid baths, selling off their belongings and properties, going to great lengths to prove that they have just, you know, up and moved and not told anybody, uh, seems to indicate otherwise. Um, so next, according to him, he killed a, Larry, a girl named Mary from Eastburn. This too was never proven and it is not certain that she ever existed. In June of 1948, he claimed that his car was stolen. So the car was found smashed at the foot of a cliff. Less than a month later, an identified female body um, in Griffith's book, he says that the body was male was found nearby, but police decided that one incident was unrelated to the other, and Haig insisted that he had nothing to do with either incident, even after his arrest and lengthy confession of the other murders. So at this point, John Haig is murdered by our count that we can actually prove um, Mac McSwan, both of his parents, and then both of the Hendersons. So we are at a body count of five now. And then he's also sold off the Hendersons' possessions and kept their dog. So at this time, he's still, you know, having tea and discussions about marriage with the very young Barbara Stevens. Um, excuse me. Sorry, burped. Um, and so he did actually show this wreck that he claimed he had nothing to do with to Barbara Stevens and it aroused her suspicions when he told her not to mention it to anyone. People had heard him say that he was tired of the car and wished someone would steal it. So whether he simply rid himself of it or rid himself of a body is really anyone's guess. He was well insured and he used this money to purchase a new Avis saloon. 
He went through the funds that he had accumulated via these murders by the end of the year. So Hank was once again in debt. And so he had he squandered quite a bit of this money gambling. He noticed an obituary in the paper of a father of a schoolmate. So he wrote a kind note to the window's widow saying that he would like to come and visit her. She thought it was sweet of him after all these years, but she died before he could get there. So no doubt he had a gruesome death in mind for her. So he went about inviting several other people out to his quote-unquote factory in Crawley, but got no takers. Now he was getting really desperate. He owed money to the hotel and had borrowed enough to pay it, but the loan had to be repaid in five days. And this is when Mrs. Duran Deacon approached him with the idea of inventing false fingernails. So he invited her to a place of business. I would just like to stop and say that Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon, 69 years old, might be... Um, you know, like my spirit animal, you know, in 1940, you know, 47, Mr. Ann Deacon is like, you know what I really need? Like, we need to make me some acrylic nails. I need false nails. I need my nails to be long. They need to be painted. They need to be gorgeous. How can you help me? Um, so she was, a, you know, she was ahead of her time. She was an icon. She was a, a trendsetter. And I hate that it ended this way for her. So, Mrs. Duran Deacon approaches him, like I said, with this idea of inventing false fingernails. And he invites her out to this factory in Crawley to talk about it. Um, so even after he murders her, so he basically shows some drawings to her on his workbench and shoots her while she's bending over. So the money he recovered from Mrs. Duran Deacon's death wasn't even enough to cover his debts. And had he not been caught, he actually wouldn't have had little choice but to murder again and pretty quickly. It covered his hotel bill, but not much else. So just as the pressure of this murder was about to come upon him, Rose Henderson's brother, who needed to find out more information about her whereabouts, contacted him again. Berlin was determined to go to Scotland Yard and wanted Haig to go with him. Their mother was ill and Rose needed to be contacted. Haig apparently contemplated doing away with <laughs> Berlin, Rose's brother as well, for being nosy, but because he offered to provide accommodations to him when he came to London, things did not quite get that far because Haig was arrested before Berlin could show up, thus ending his killing spree. Perhaps the person more most strongly affected by all of this, besides Haig's distressed parents and obviously the dead people, um, was young Barbara Stevens. She visited him in prison and expected to find a broken man falsely accused. Instead, she found a man who seemed to be reveling in the attention and admitted to everything. As she read the accounts in the papers, she realized that he had killed all of those people while she and her had been friends. And she asked why he had not killed her. And he seemed astonished by the question. In fact, he reassured her that he never even had the idea to kill her. It did not reassure her, however, to realize that he admitted his love for her in the same week that he had killed Mac McSwan. They had spent a wonderful day together only two days after he had disposed of McSwan's parents, and then they had talked about marriage while he killed the Hendersons, and he even sold her Mrs. Henderson's dress, remember? And the day after Olive Duran Deacon died, they had tea together. Barbara could not wrap her mind about how she could have known so little about this person that she had planned to marry. Um, but I will say that that seems on par for the time. Like, I know 
in the 1940s, perhaps people did get to spend more time with each other and, and, and go on dates. But we were coming off kind of the, the tail end of World War II and people were just kind of getting married, right? Like people were getting married <laughs> and they were going for it. That was like our, that was, you know, those are our baby boomers. Like people were getting out of the, we were celebrating the end of a war and people were marrying people they barely knew. So it's not surprising that she did not know a whole bunch about him. That seems a bit customary for the time, maybe not for her particularly, but certainly for the era that we're discussing. Um, Barbara would visit him in turn, would visit him once a week and she wrote him letters the entire time he was in prison. And for his 40th birthday, she sent him a good luck charm, yet she grew increasingly aware that he probably would have killed her well as well had it become necessary. Um, so he was doing, had found work with her dad's company and had he, and keep in mind that had he not been arrested after he had murdered Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon, he would have murdered Rose's, Rose Henderson's brother, um, Mr. Berlin. And it, had he gotten away with that, he wouldn't have really netted any money from that because he'd already pretty much liquidated all of the Henderson's possessions. Um, so then he would have had to come to the next people available. So that probably would have been the Stevenson's family because they were the night, the next closest one. So in order to coop any proceeds from that, he would have had to have murdered um, Barbara Stevens's dad and her mom and then marry her to gain control of whatever money or income was expected from their deaths so he would have certainly had to play the long game there and he was already about to be back in debt because Mrs. Alderan Deacon's death didn't really net him a whole bunch of money so there's there's no way that he would have played the long game and Barbara Stevens's in my opinion, absolutely correct in the situation. He probably would have murdered her entire family given the chance. And it was very soon about to come to that. So Haig claims that he killed nine people, right? But never, we, nobody could ever prove that three of them um, were dead except for the unidentified body near Haig's crashed car. So it may be that he told them about the extra victims because there was no evidence that he profited from killing them. So we could better support this theory that he was killing people to drink their blood because you know there was they can't prove that these people one ever existed and that there was any financial motive for their death so he can just say oh well i just killed them to drink their blood i didn't get anything out of it to make this idea of, of vampirism and um mental instability more believable um so his comment to the reception officer when he first arrived at the prison was, this is the result of doing six people, but not for personal gain. So there was no real evidence of insanity, yet alone this vampirism that he claimed to have visions about. The thing about prosecuting bodies with, um, prosecuting cases with no bodies is that a lot of times your case is built on circumstantial evidence. And even though this was 1944, Scotland Yard was really on the cutting edge of forensics, toxicology, things like fingerprinting, um, and forensic investigation. So in this particular case, they actually did a very good job with the forensics, and that is ultimately on top of the... Um, confession that John Hay gave is what ultimately was able to get him convicted. So now let's talk about this forensic investigation. 
So the police go out to the storehouse where he says all these people died, and they do find this acid sludge that Haig described. They also note that there is a lot of zigzagging marks from where someone had rolled or dragged something heavy toward that area. Um, so in this case, it would be bodies dissolving in acid. The ground was covered in debris and sludge, and that was mixed up with dirt and trash. Um, in the depth, its depth for some of the spots was three to four inches, covering an area of four to six feet. So the doctor's practiced eye detected something unusual about the size of a cherry, which to anyone else might look like one of the stones lying on the ground. However, it was a significant find to the case. It was a gallbladder stone. The acid had not dissolved it. Also embedded in the greasy, undissolved fat were some good specimens of human bone. Uh, one of these appeared to be from a left foot. Haig was to say that he believed this was from Henderson, who had not fully dissolved, and not Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon. The forensic, the forensic team gathered about 475 pounds of grease and dirt to cart back to the lab for closer examination. They also bought in a 40-gallon green drum that had the same greasy substance inside, and at the bottom of this drum, a hairpin was stuck in the grease. Inside the building, a fine spatter of blood stains was noted on the wall and carefully photographed. The wall was then scraped for analysis. The inspector thought the spray was consistent with someone getting shot while being bent over a bench, possibly looking at a paper, as Haig had described Mrs. Duran Deacon doing. So the test indicated that the blood was human, but it could not specifically be grouped. So again, we're aware of that. This is the 1940s. So blood typing was beginning to become a thing. Um, but in this particular case, not necessarily blood typing. So it kind of evolutionized, right? So you could first, in about 1940, figure out if it was human blood or animal blood, and that eventually evolved to being able to blood type and tell what type it was. That evolved to be able to tell where we are now, whose DNA is in the blood, or if the blood is male or female, or whatever we're looking at. But we started somewhere, right? So they knew it was human blood, and based on the spatters, they determined that this lined up with what John Haig had told them in his confession. So for three days, the sludge that was taken back to the lab was carefully sifted, was sifted, and because it was an acid, the technicians had to wear rubber gloves and cover their arms in Vaseline to protect themselves from the acid. But this painstaking search actually paid off. This is gross, so trigger warning. I'm sorry, re really the whole entire podcast this week is a trigger warning. But here's what they found when they got finished sifting through all of that sludge. They found 28 pounds of human body fat, three faceted gallstones, part of a left foot that was not quite eroded, 18 fragments of human bone, intact upper and lower dentures, the handle of a red plastic bag, and a lipstick container. A further test on the gallstones proved that they were human, and the bone fragments were identified as a left ankle pivot bone, center of the right foot, right heel, right ankle pivot bone, femur, pelvic bone, spinal column, and others were too eroded to be precise in their identification, but they had all been dissolved in sulfuric acid, just as Haig had described. 
The investigators' great luck lay in the fact that the sulfuric acid did not work on plastic as it did on human tissue. It would take at least three weeks for the acid to finally break it down. Thus, if Haig had been arrested later or had chosen to wait before giving his confession, the forensic team would have had much less success in finding identifiable evidence. The dentures were also a particularly important find because the team could now go to Mrs. Duran Deacon's dentist to see if they had a match. Um, Mrs. Duran Deacon's gum shrinkage problems had sent her to the dentist, Helen Mayo, on many occasions. So for this particular reason, Dr. Mayo kept a cast of the dentures. And so she knew them to be a match for the dentures that, that were found at the Crawley location. Simpson took the bones to his lab and discovered evidence of osteoarthritis in the joints, and it was soon determined that Mrs. Duran Deacon suffered from osteoarthritis. The police made a plaster cast of the left foot, and it proved to fit perfectly into one of her shoes. Bloodstains were also found on the Persian coat, which was traced back to Duran Deacon from repairs made to it, and the blood was found on the cuff of one of Haig's shirt sleeves. The handbag strap was identified as having belonged to a bag owned by Mrs. Duran Deacon, and that's the one that she had carried when she drove to Crawley with Haig. Later, the rest of the bag was found in the yard, apparently thrown there casually by Haig and matched to the strap. So oddly enough, they had the strap, but he hadn't disposed or tried to get rid of the actual bag itself, which is so odd. But I really, truly believe that he, in his mind, felt like because he had dissolved these bodies, it did not matter what else was found. They wouldn't be able to prove that he had murdered anybody. So he took a very, 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 very little literal interpretation of Corpus Delecti, and it was his undoing. The police also found witnesses who had seen Mrs. Duran Deacon with Haig at various times the last day she was alive. They both left the hotel after lunch, although not together, and then at 4.15, they went to the George Tavern for about five minutes. And around 4.45, Haig told Mrs. Jones that the woman he was expecting to meet him there in Crawley had not arrived. He was seen after five getting things out of his car and taking them into the storehouse. He then went out for a snack at 6.30. At 9.30, he went to the George for dinner and returned to London at 10. In Haig's room was a shopping list of the things he needed to buy prior to killing Mrs. Duran Deacon. Taking it one step further, Dr. Turfitt, the police scientist on the forensic team, decided to experiment with sulfuric acid to test Haig's theories. He used an amputated human foot, a sheep's leg, and other organic minerals materials, finding that the acid worked at varying speeds depending on how much water was present. That proved highly resistant, and it had been Mrs. Duran Deacon's weight that had preserved those items found in the sludge. Meaning that if Mrs. Duran Deacon had decided that she wanted to go on a diet um, a month or so before her untimely demise at the hands of George of John George Haig, there would have probably been less of her left to prove that he had murdered her. Within a month of Haig's arrest, with all of this evidence, prosecution was ready for trial. So, 
G.R.F. Morris is Haig's defense counsel in this, and he doesn't call any evidence during this two-day process. He and the prosecution agreed to stick only to the Duran Deacon case and refrain from mentioning Haig's statements about drinking his own victim's blood. For his part, Haig envisioned a decade-long stint in a mental institution and then freedom to continue to prey on people. He had seen the exaggerated newspaper accounts describing him as a blood-mad vampire, and he was only too happy to go along with that. As an added flourish, he once drank his own urine while in his jail cell. On the other hand, E.G. Robbie, for the prosecution, called 33 witnesses to prove premeditation of murder for gain. He laid out a case in the form of basic chronology that showed how rational Haig's movements had been, and it did not prove to be the movements of some bloodthirsty person who could not control their urges that were based on a dream. So, Monday, February 14th, Haig is in debt and has an unpaid hotel bill of 50 pounds. He meets with Mrs. Haig or Mrs. Duran Deacon for lunch and offers her a business proposition showing her a box of plastic fingernails. On Tuesday, he asks a local engineer to fetch him acid from London. He borrows 50 pounds from Mr. Jones and then tells him about the artificial fingernails. Wednesday, Haig pays his hotel bill with Mr. Jones's money. He confirms his order for 10 gallons of acid. Thursday, the acid is delivered to Crawley. Haig gets a 40-gallon black drum from one company and then exchanges it for a green one prepared to resist corrosive acids. Friday, Mrs. Duran Deacon is seen carrying the handbag that is later found in the storehouse. She is also seen by someone who recalls her in a Persian coat. And later that day, Haig and Duran Deacon drive away in his car and she is not seen again. At 4.45, Haig tells Mr. Jones that the person he expected to meet regarding the fingernails had not shown up. Saturday, Haig tells Mrs. Lane that Duran Deacon did not show for their appointment. This day she goes to, this is the day that he goes to Bulls to have the jewelry evaluated, but the licensed appraiser is out. Another jeweler buys a wristwatch from Haig, later identified by her sister as belonging to Mrs. Duran Deacon. The cleaners also receives a Persian lamb coat, which is valued at about 50 pounds. The sum Haig needs to repay his debt to Mr. Jones, which is now overdue. Sunday, February 20th, Haig takes Mrs. Lane to the police station. Thus, we are where we started from. On Monday, Haig promises Jones a quick repayment of the 50-pound debt. He again takes jewelry to Mr. Bulls for valuation. It is assessed at 131 pounds. Tuesday, Haig partly repays Mr. Jones what he owes. On the next few days, he adds money to his bank account, reducing an overdraft, and goes to pay Mr. Jones. But by then, Jones has been interviewed by the police and he urges Haig to stay away. Haig continues to make statements professing his ignorance of Mrs. Duran Deacon's whereabouts. Saturday, February 26th, Sergeant Heslin breaks into the storehouse and that's when they find the aprons and the rubber gloves and the gas masks. Um, this is also when Heslin finds the papers referring to everyone, everybody else that is missing and the container with the revolver and the ammunition. On Sunday, the code is retrieved from the cleaners. On Monday, the bag is found at a hotel that contains the fabric that matches the bottom portions of her coat and sleeve of her coat. Um, this is also when the Inspector Symes collects the jewelry from Bulls and brings it to Haig at the police station where he makes his lengthy and calculated confession. 
the Tuesday after that, that's when Inspector Mahone goes to Crawley and takes charge. And this is when we find the shopping list and host hotel room of the itemized things that they found in the Crawley storehouse. This is also when they discover the shirt with the bloodstained cup. On Wednesday, Mahone finds a bloodstained pin knife in the cubby hole of Haig's car. And this is when Haig is formally charged with murder. Friday, March the 2nd, is when Haig makes his confession and written statement, and he adds three more people to his list of six. Um, Tuesday, March 8th, a chain and attache case that had belonged to Mrs. Duran Deacon were found where Haig said they would be. Saturday, March 19th, the handbag that belonged to Mrs. Duran Deacon, which others saw her carrying on February 18th, is found outside of the storehouse intact from the acid blood sludge, and it also has items that are identified as belonging to Mrs. Duran Deacon inside. The listing of witnesses and events were essentially the backbone of the trial. Um, the location in London or Sussex was uncertain at first, but when Haig's counsel was unprepared for the London date, it ended up in Sussex. Multiple doctors all examined Haig in prison, some before and some after his trial. And they were particularly interested in his claims to have this compulsion for blood, but most often such a compulsion, compulsion is part of an also sexual deviation um, and is identical to the sexual frenzy itself. And Haig gave no indications of such a perversion or sexual deviation. In fact, he seemed to have little interest in sex at all. So Haig went through several examinations and the results were normal. So most of the doctors were of the opinion that John George Haig was sane and he was merely malingering or faking his insanity. There were other doctors who said that he was mentally ill and he may have had some type of compulsion or paranoia, but even that diagnosis was not conclusively deemed a mental disease or defect. Um, but nevertheless, this professional opinion was all that the, that the defense really had. Um, so basically, the defense psychiatrists are saying that based on his upbringing and the fanatical religion and all of these things and his, you know, dreams and imagery of Christ on the cross and this idea of blood, that they think that he had this absolute callous, cheerful, bland, and almost friendly indifference regarding the crimes. And he freely admits to having committed them. And the the physician said that in his experience, this was completely unique, but he did think that the blood dreams that Haig claimed to have had probably did happen, but that Haig exaggerated their effect. And he said that Haig probably had tasted blood, but that he doubted that he drank it as he claimed. And he also said that he was too lucid and intelligent to have not known what he was doing. So even though Haig wrote a note to him identifying various personalities that he'd had throughout history, including Christ and Hitler in an effort to get the doctor to understand his abnormalities, he didn't bite. Um, so really the physician failed to find out um, really if anything was actually wrong with um, John George Haig, especially considering the fact that he had befriended um, an employee at a Sussex psychiatric hospital. And over the years, he had gathered a lot of information about mental illness. So he knew about the behavioral patterns and the traits and the habits of various disorders. And the subject 
fascinated him and he never ceased to ask questions. So in the past, he had posed as many things, a lawyer, an engineer, a doctor. So it, it's not outside of the scope of possibility that it would not be difficult for him to pose as a person suffering from a mental condition. And most people were of the mind that he was doing precisely that, although not in a way that convinced most of those people who examined him. Haig's trial started uh, July 18th, 1949. Um, and on the day of the trial, John George Haig pleaded not guilty and no question was raised regarding his mental competency to stand trial. Um, <laughs> so all of this, all of this hoopla and all these psychiatrists and all of this you know, psychiatric evaluation was for naught because when it got time for the trial, everybody agreed that he was perfectly sane and knew what he was doing. And even though he pled not guilty, no one brought up anything about him drinking blood or any type of mental disease or defect. Once the trial was underway, um, basically, as I said, this whole idea of him being a vampire and all of these things really didn't come out in the trial. And in fact, once it was all said and done, it only took the jury about 10 minutes to return a guilty verdict and Justice Travers Humphreys sentenced him to death. And so on, he was sentenced to hang on August 10th of 1949 by executioner Albert Pierre Point. So Haig's last days were spent making sure that he went down in history as a vampire who had perfected a way of finding his victims and that using his forgery skills to put their money in his own bank account didn't have anything to do with it. He'd have his barber come into the prison to cut his hair and only stopped receiving visitors when he had to start wearing prison clothes. He actually welcomed Madame Tussauds into his cell on the afternoon before his execution, and they took an exacting three hours making a death mask for the wax model they put up the day after his death, even wearing the clothes specially chosen and donated by Haig himself. Meticulous in his eye for detail to the last, he asked the prison governor if he might meet the hangman to check that he'd got his weight right as he explained his sprightly walk suggested a man of less weight and that he was and this should be taken into account when calculating the drop on the gallows. The governor assured him that Mr. Pierre Point was notorious and an experienced executioner and would make a provision for this without having to meet him. John Haig remains in the public eye in a special exhibition at the Museum of London where a collection of grisly relics are open to public view from New Scotland Yard's infamous Black Museum. The gloves and apron that Haig used to protect himself from burns from the acid are on show together with Mrs. Duran Deacon's gallstones and her dentures and the revolver. John Haig made friends wherever he went. The police liked him. The chaplain who knelt to pray with him in his cells minute before his minutes before his execution spoke affectionately about him. And his parents still loved him and firmly believed that God would forgive him. Even the judges at his trial, um, Justice Humphreys, must have had a certain curiosity for the man sitting in the dock and spending most of his time doing a crossword because a few years later, Mr. Humphreys in his retirement to decided, decided to become a resident himself in the very same hotel as the late Mr. John Haig and his last victim, Mrs. Olive Duran Deacon. And that is the story of John George Haig, the acid bath murderer.
Guys, this was a long one. I apologize for all the ambient noise and background noise from my dog and my neighbors. I'm so sorry about that. Um, I will try to find a quieter place to record. Um, maybe after crawling my closet again so they aren't as noisy. Um, I apologize for the delay in um, getting episodes out. You guys know that I also have a side business, or I don't know if you know this, but I have a side business where I make cups and little um, gifts and things. So um, you can check out that side business uh, on Etsy. My store is called Handmade by VJ. Um, if you're looking for some type of cool tumbler or cup or wax melt or something very cool for you or a family member, um, you can check me out there. Um, I very often post my creations on the show's page and my personal page just because we talk about murders and grisly, not so pleasant things. And so occasionally I like to mix that up with pleasant things like pictures of my lunch or things that I'm listening to on the radio or things that I make because I like crafting. Um, but I think that is it for this week. This one was a tough one. Um, I'm always fascinated by the evolution of forensic and in forensics. And in this case, it played a really big part in being able to prosecute um, somebody who was absolutely murdering for gain and not for weird bloodlust or whatever he wanted people to believe. I think it's interesting that you can see it exhibit with Mrs. Duran Deacon's dentures and her gallbladder stones. I don't think I'll be checking that out on my next visit to London, but it's nice to know that it's there if I ever want to. Um, you, of course, can always uh, check out the show um, on any of the platforms that you listen to podcasts on. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, that is at VJ underscore Burton, and the show's Twitter is at Murder V Pod. Um, that is the same um, on Instagram as well at VJ underscore Burton and at Murder V Pod. Please drop me a note, a line, tell me if you enjoy the show, what you don't enjoy. Um, if you have any suggestions about what case I should cover next, I would love to hear about those too. So yeah, I'm open to whatever you have for me. Or if you just want to talk about you know, murders or scams or anything that you think would be interesting for me to cover, um, I would love to hear about it. Um, and actually, I would love to have guests. So if there is a crime that you are particularly interested in or want me to discuss, um, let me know if you'd be interested in coming on the show and talking about it with me because I would love to have you. Um, I enjoy guests. Uh, so yeah, thank you again to all of you for listening. Um, and I think that is it. Uh, until we do this again... You have been listening to Murder V Wrote, and I am your host, V.